As you may have gathered from the uh, guided meditation, I want to explore impermanence. And uh, we had an interesting short discussion uh, before we began at nine uh, about the, what might the title of the talk be. And you know, I was going to call it Impermanence Two. <laughs> and someone said it's Impermanence Continued uh, or Impermanence Yet Again. <laughs> which can make one wonder, is impermanent permanent? <laughs> Check that one out. I'm not going to give you the answer. Okay. So, impermanence is a very fundamental area of inquiry. It's a translation of the word anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A. And it's uh, right at the heart of the practice of many spiritual traditions, including that of, that of Buddhism. Part of the reason why I'm interested in talking about it is that I've, in the last uh, six weeks, I've been in uh, retreat spaces, uh, four of the six weeks, uh, teaching two retreats and doing personal retreats myself, uh, two one-week retreats, uh, one of them last week. So, and in both of those retreats, focusing on impermanence was very central to both retreats. So some of the practices which we did for uh, you know, about 15 minutes this morning, I was doing for a good part of the day, uh, for a number of days. And so, uh, was inspired in that way. As we saw the last time I was here, as we, as we explored, deeper understanding of impermanence is one of the three fundamental areas of insight in insight meditation. So again, that perennial question, okay, I'm doing insight practice. Do I have any insights yet? What insights should I expect? You know, when are the insights going to come? And so forth. Uh, there are a lot of different areas of insight. Some of them are more personal. You know, as the mind gets quiet, there can be intuitions about aspects of our life in which we see outside of all the busyness, which can be very, very important. Can see, oh, here I see something about this work, this relationship you know, what I really want to do in life. And, so, and that can happen when the mind gets more quiet. And then there are also these three areas of fundamental insight into the nature of our minds, the nature of things, which are taken to be freeing. There's a very uh, good book which just came out a little while ago called Seeing That Frees, which is a very, it's by Rob Berbea. I, I don't know if it's in the bookstore, but it's uh, really quite a sort of intermediate or advanced uh, guide for meditation. Has some very nice material and impermanence. And I like that phrase of his, seeing that freeze. It's not a literal uh, rendering of insight or vipassana, but it comes quite close to the meaning that what we're interested in isn't you know, I don't know, uh, insight who will, into who will win the Super Bowl. 
although that could be financially beneficial. <laughs> but, but more it's insight into three areas. Uh, the first is impermanence, seeing into the flow, the continual nature of the flow of things, the continual arising and passing, the continual changing. And in some ways, we may intellectually say, well, isn't that obvious? What's the big deal? Of course things change. Of course things are impermanent. And so I'll say a little more about why the exploration of impermanence is not simply repeating an obvious truth, why there's actually can be discovery and learning and deepening and uh, powerful new ways of seeing things. The second area, which we've explored in December, is the area called dukkha, which I like to translate as reactivity. It's really seeing the way that we can be resistant to what's happening in the present moment, either pushing it away or grabbing hold of it. And I prefer reactivity as a translation of dukkha. The usual translation is suffering, which can be misleading because uh, dukkha is really that resistance to the present moment, the, the discontent or the lack of ease with the present moment. And it it's, um, can be about the positive as well, grabbing for the, what we think is positive. That is a form of dukkha. And so the word suffering, as I've sometimes said, can obscure that. And then we also have the problem that um, is really, I think, at, it, at the depths of the teaching, pointing to the uh, reaction to what's happening rather than simply the presence of the unpleasant. Presence of the unpleasant for a practitioner is not an issue. It's what you do with it. And if you can be with it skillfully, that's not dukkha. It's the unskillful being with the unpleasant where there's reactivity pushing away the unpleasant, maybe grabbing for something else. That's what's unskillful. That's what leads to difficulty. And so there's a kind of technical distinction that we sometimes make between pain and suffering, which is not conveyed in the usual usage in the English language. And so we sometimes say pain is a given. There's sometimes pain. Suffering is optional. And I sometimes mention how uh, uh, someone I worked with when I went to Kentucky as a hospice nurse and she reported a woman who was a double amputee in hospice with a big sign at the foot of her bed saying, pain is a given, suffering is optional at that time in her life with those conditions. Same, same insight. So that's a huge area of insight that we've explored, you know, and there, for people who are newer to our gathering those talks and all the talks on Wednesdays are on the website Dharma Seed. And you can find those. I think there were in December several talks on reactivity. And then we've, the third of the areas of insight is the area of looking into the nature of the self. And a teaching called not self, which is of the three probably the most confusing areas and it's an area that, again, we've looked at here in this gathering uh, quite a few times. I, f I forget when the last one was, maybe, maybe last year, I don't remember. Um, 
memory is also quite impermanent. <laughs> uh, but what we'll see, especially as we explore impermanence, is that the three are quite related. And there's a, there, as, we <clears throat> as we deepen in our understanding, we can have a sense of that interrelationship. So I want to focus on impermanence and focus on impermanence in its two main forms, which are what we might call gross impermanence, which is the more obvious changes that we can notice in the world, in ourselves, the fact that we are born and die, things come and go on a more gross level, and then look at impermanence more on a moment-to-moment -moment level at more subtle levels of mind. And uh, I think this time I I'm, I'm want to take a little more time on the gross level and next time a little more time on the subtle level, but I will talk about both of them today. Impermanence is very fundamental to our experience, and yet we don't always see it clearly. And in fact, we often don't want certain things to be impermanent, like the good things, like us. <laughs> we want to be an exception to impermanence. or at least for a long time an exception to impermanence. Right? Uh, the, the Thai teacher Achan Cha, who is very much connected with Spirit Rock, the teacher of Jack Cornfield, Achan Sumedho, several other teachers uh, in the area. Achan just means teacher in Thai, so it's this teacher Cha. He said, uh, not seeing impermanence or wanting it different is like asking a river to back up. It's like boxing a tree and hoping to win. <laughs> it's like going to a duck and saying, why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> well, that was Achan's Cha's way of teaching. He was had a you know, kind of came from a farming family, like a down-to-earth type of humor. Um, and so there's this, uh, you know, in, in so many traditions there's this emphasis on impermanence. Some of you may remember maybe from school studying Heraclitus, you know, a Greek philosopher, one of the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, probably over 2,500 years ago, he said, there is no static being no unchanging substratum. Change or movement is the Lord of the universe. Everything is in a state of becoming, of continual flux. And then the, uh, in, in Greek languages it's called panta rei. He said you cannot stop, step twice into the same river for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. And a lot of commentators on Heraclitus said, well, you can't actually step in the same river once. <laughs> because it's like, same compared to what? Okay. See, that, that, that would take some inquiry. <laughs> okay. But check it out, right? You know, once you see continual change, 
there's no sameness, so the whole word same tends to evaporate. Okay, now you get that a little bit? <laughs> Think about it on your way home. Okay. But it's actually, it's actually very interesting. The reflection on impermanence, which on a, in a certain level is obvious, can actually take us quite deeply and can actually take us uh, to a place where we see how a, lot, a large number of the conventions with which we live are just that. They're conventions. Conventions of time, conventions of self, the con different kind of conventions that structure our mind and structure our society. And especially when we look to the more subtle level of looking in impermanence, we can see that. And so we actually become freer and not so bound by the usual conventions. But it also can be at times challenging to face the world without the usual conventions. You know, think of the, the convention of time itself. Is time real or is time a construction that we put on phenomena? <coughs> we can look into that. Yeah, we can look into that. How do we look at time? Mm. Time is a kind of a mystery, isn't it? This flow, where did it come from? Is there a level where there's no time? Is time relative? You know, a lot of science fiction is based on the notion that time is a kind of construction. You can do time travel, right? And it's very interesting to look into it. Also, can you have a sense of a big sense of time? It's very interesting. This is from uh, Joanna Macy. She talks about this is a little, this is not so much seeing time as a construction, but shifting our usual sense of time so we have a very big sense of time. She says, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. <laughs> we are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs did not begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into a sense of equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. This helps us, if we are activists, to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. And that sense of impermanence has been very central in Buddhist tradition. This is uh, from the Dhammapada, which is one of the early teachings of the Buddha. Rather 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. This is a strong statement, isn't it? Rather to see impermanence deeply than to live with ignorance of impermanence for a hundred years. 
This is from the Tibetan teacher Milarepa, who's in the uh, uh, tanka at the back of the room near the doors with his ears, with his hand and his ears cupped. He says this, if you cannot take the fact of impermanence personally, you will not be a good practitioner. A little more stern approach. <laughs> right? And also from the Tibetan tradition, this is from a teacher named uh, Geshe Patua. If you want a single Dharma practice, to meditate on impermanence is the most important. Quite strong, right? Quite strong. Quite a strong statement. You know, because again, we may think that it's, it's obvious. So, uh, last time I mentioned that I, I've conceptualized five benefits of working with impermanence. And this is my own list. This is not a traditional list. Uh, practicing with impermanence helps us to see more clearly, to see the nature of things. It's really to move out of the more habitual, constructed way of seeing things. And we'll get to that in more detail in a moment. Uh, to notice change more directly, both at a gross level and on a more subtle level, deepens wisdom and helps us with seeing. Secondly, being with impermanence helps us with letting go, which is really one of the primary reasons for the teaching. We often grab hold of things or people or experiences because we think, if I do that, I'll gain security. That's really, it's the way to you know, grab hold of the pleasant, push away the unpleasant. And as we see impermanence, we'll see that it's actually unwise to grab hold of what's continually changing. Again, some things may last longer than others, but everything, the best experience, this relationship, this work, everything is changing, even though they might last for a while. And again, it doesn't mean not to make commitment, not to really have a sense of duration, but that sense of impermanence can give a sense of not hanging on too much, not hanging on too tightly. And so it's taken as key to liberation. The Buddha says if we would perceive impermanence, there would be no grasping ignorance or self-centeredness. We would be liberated and not cling. So that letting go is really an important dimension. And it can give, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, it can give us a, an urgency to practice, some ways of contemplating change and impermanence can say, can lead us to ask, how am I living my life? You know, do I think that time is endless? What's important? How should I live? You know, again, to bring, can bring about a sense of urgency without being, uh, what, uh, having that be distorted or being kind of going into another form of grasping. But a, a kind of a mature urgency is very important. And uh, as we focus on impermanence, it can be a quite a, a, actually a fairly easy doorway to deeper dimensions of insight and practice. You know, and we can see that especially uh, in the working with the more subtle dimensions of impermanence. It can take us into very subtle levels of our minds, quite powerful ways of seeing. And then lastly, impermanence, when we really uh, look at it, helps us to be more compassionate. 
we realize that we are all arising and passing, all of us. I mentioned how one of the practices which I found myself doing in retreat, just kind of spontaneously, was doing the loving-kindness practice and saying for one person after another my usual phrases of wishing well, but beginning those phrases by saying, uh, you are precious, you are arising and passing. Right? And it gave a poignancy to uh, that kind of practice. And so uh, compassion always has to be there with impermanence, or, or that understanding of impermanence can be distorted. There's a chant that we do, which um, I'll do now, that when I teach retreats, I like to do this sometimes at the end of the day. Uh, it, there's a wonderful impermanence chant. And some of you probably know this and have been on retreat with, uh, with teachers who've uh, given this chant. And I'll, I'll give it right now. Anicca vata sankara upatava yadamino upakitava niruchanti desang upasamo sukho. And the English translation is also, we use it in uh, a chant form. All things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. I, th- I was just channeling Sylvia and she said, do you want to do it together? <laughs> Would you like to? Yeah. Okay, so just I'll, I'll do it in... Uh, I'll do it in call and response. Anicca vata sankara Upata va yadamino Upakita va niruchanti Desang upasamo sukho All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth. To be in harmony with this truth. Brings great happiness. Brings great happiness. Thank you. <laughs> So we'll do we'll do that maybe at the end. We'll see see if that's that's in the flow. So at the more gross level of contemplating impermanence, we look at change and we look at uh, the fact of of death. And it can bring about a certain sense of urgency and asking us, how should I live? Asking each of ourselves, how should I live? In the Tibetan tradition, there are a series of preliminary practices. And among those practices is one, uh, a practice called the Four Reflections, which turn the mind towards the Dharma. And the first of this is reflecting on the preciousness of a human life. And the second of them is focusing on impermanence and death. 
And I thought I'd just say a little bit about both of those. These are some main ways that we can practice with this more gross level, you know, a very concrete way to practice, which can be surprisingly powerful, is to take 10 minutes a day and just reflect in an ordinary way about how things change, about how things arise and pass away, about uh, the certainty of death, about birth and death, how I will die, how those close to me will die. Again, it's not meant to be morbid or unbalanced, but it's just bringing something which we often suppress into our awareness. And again, with all of these practices, if we were getting a little bit unbalanced or uh, treating this a way which was one-sided, we would have antidotes which could help us. You know, we would maybe focus more on compassion or uh, focus on the beauty, the wonderful things, and so forth. So this is, all, this is all meant to really give us a clear perspective and a, you know, a balanced way of looking into things. So the, the, this first reflection is on the preciousness of human life. The fact that it's it's actually um, rare in a certain way. And uh, to have a human birth as opposed to the birth of an animal or an insect is taken, again, in this tradition to be something that shouldn't be taken for granted. It's actually rare. And it's very precious, particularly because with a human birth, we have the capacity to come to the depths of love and wisdom and awareness. In other words, to be more and more awake. And this is, and to manifest that in our lives. And this is taken to be incredibly precious and not to be taken for granted. And of course, all of us at times just take this for granted. We go about our lo living our lives in a conventional way. So this reflection on the preciousness of life uh, with the awareness of impermanence is taken to be very helpful. It's also connected with reflecting on the fact that for most of us, there are conditions that are conducive to development. You know, we know that there are many conditions that could make practice uh, hard or impossible. You know, we know that we could be living at a time where there are none of these teachings, for example. You know, when I was first starting to practice, which was in the late 1970s, I met people who had been very spiritually inclined and were maybe 20 or 30 years older and had not really had proper guidance. And they, got, they would get lost for 10 years at a time with their spiritual quest. Really dedicated people who did not have good access to teachings and practices. It's something really to appreciate. Similarly, to be appreciative of the fact that we have um, good enough health you know, to practice, or that our mind is sound. You know? We know that there are people at all ages with life-threatening illnesses. This is part of this reflection you know, on the preciousness. There are people um, at different ages where the mind is not, for whatever reason, is not fully capable of practicing. We know that there are people in war-torn countries who do not have the conditions to really go deeply, necessarily. Maybe rare people can do that in those conditions, but where there's a lack of social freedom, and we have enough freedom here with all the, 
with all the issues in our society, there's certain, there's a significant amount of freedom, religious spiritual freedom where we can practice. This is part of the reflection on the preciousness of, of, our, of our situation. So reflection on impermanence can also take the form of reflect, reflecting on the fact of, the fact of death, that, there, that death is something that will occur to us. We may be uncertain about much in our lives, but we know that death will occur. And again, it's not too meant to be morbid, but rather taken to be something which quickens our sense of practice. And so in many, many traditions, this reflection on uh, death is taken to be important to really having us have a skillful perspective to do that which is important. And so reflection on impermanent death can be very helpful. You know, I read last time from uh, the Ten Subjects for Daily Reflection, which are from the teachings of the Buddha. And this involves ten different reflections, some of which point to impermanence and death. One of them says, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. You know, whether in loss or death. And another one says, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? So you see, this is all pointing not to be morbid or paralyzed, but actually to ask, how am I living? What am I, am I living according my, to my priorities? I'm thinking, a lot of the people I work with one-on-one, uh, quite a significant percentage of them, what we focus on is, how can I live really living out my deepest priorities? This is not easy in this society, right? You know, and we all, we all get sometimes lost or sometimes overly busy, and it's no different for meditation teachers. One of the main themes that we talk about when we get together is, I'm really busy. How can I be less busy? You know? And so it's not like, uh, it's not like I or we have it together on that one. And so, but that, you know, the busyness of the society and the culture, and again, it's even for people who are retired. So many people who are retired complain of being too busy. How is that? <laughs> right? And so looking at priorities is really, is really, really crucial. You know, and focusing, focusing on impermanence and death can really be, can be, really be very central. The uh, philosopher Plato said that he understood uh, philosophy, which literally in the, in the Greek means the love of wisdom. Uh, he said that it was a preparation for death. That uh, it's a preparation for being at peace and having a kind of settledness at the time of death because one has done what one needs to do with one's life. Again, it's related to that, that prioritizing. And so the focus on death, the focus on impermanence, can really awake that sense of urgency. The German poet uh, Holderlin said, said this, he said, where danger lies grows that which saves. So where there is some sense of 
danger or loss can also be the place where something beautiful grows, grows that which saves. And there's, there's a uh, term in the Buddha's teachings that's called samvega, which is uh, a sense sometimes of being at a place where one has this sense of urgency and a sense that I'm overly caught in things which are actually not that meaningful. That can come from reflection on impermanence and death. And am I living with my deepest priorities? And so again, this can be part of that 10-minute reflection every day <coughs> that we do, that we reflect on impermanence and death, and am I living with my priorities? And again, this can be, it's not an easy reflection, but this is really part of what's offered uh, traditionally. Where am I complacent? Where am I not really uh, living as I most want to live? And so we have, we can have this sense of uh, Sam Vega of urgency, of some sense that the usual way of conventional living is not so meaningful. You know, going for, you know, having one's priorities be about something more shallow than developing love and wisdom and awareness. And it can lead, lead one to, to question that. So all of this is trying to give more energy to look more deeply and to go for what's most important in life. And it has to really come from oneself. From the Buddha, when one is truly wise, one's constant task will surely be this recollection about death blessed with, some, with such mighty potency. Again, it sort of goes against a lot of what's in our culture. Maybe that's changed some, you know, with in the last 30, 40 years with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, where death used to be something that was in the middle of life in a way, and it's been a little bit brought to the margins, right? <coughs> people used to die at home more, and people, people still do. But that uh, familiarity with death is taken to be a really significant part of practice. Again, maybe not so much for many of us, not so much as it might have been 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So that's this first kind of reflection on impermanence uh, that I've called the reflection on the gross dimension of impermanence, which has, again, the benefits especially of developing more of a sense of urgency, asking ourselves, am I living how I want to live, clarifying priorities, uh, looking at the big picture. And that's part of the work that we do on impermanence that I've wanted to give a little more focus to today. And then there's the uh, related uh, practice that's more on a more subtle level of the moment-to-moment -moment looking into impermanence. And this is it can be more fun. Okay. If, if that was a little somber to hear about impermanence and death for a while, you know, it's true. You know, it, it, can, it can be sobering. It's, it's very valuable, but it, it's, um, the, the actual noticing of impermanence moment to moment, much as we did in the guided meditation, I find, as, as I, I talked about a few weeks ago, I find that practice brings about more of a sense of lightness and freedom. 
just noticing, and there, there can be difficult moments, but that can be a result of just noticing the flow, because always uh, this brings us back to the core of our practice, which is responding in the present moment with wisdom and compassion moment to moment. That's entirely what we're aiming at. And the sense of being in the flow and noticing moment to moment change can be extremely helpful. And it can just remind us, my only task is just to respond in the moment. I blew it 20 minutes ago, okay, get over it. (laughs) And let me just respond in the moment. And if I'm having guilt, let me deal with the guilt, right? And so it's a continual freshness of the moment that we're, that is the center of our practice. And the, the practice on the permanence really helps with that. And so we can study this uh, in our practice in these various ways. I gave in the guided meditation a lot of ways uh, to work with impermanence, to notice it moment to moment with sound, as we did in the guided meditation with sensation, notice thinking. Just do the meditation where you notice change. And if you can, you know, make that, if you wish for the, maybe some of you did this for the last few weeks, make this for the next week. We're gonna, I'll be here next week. Make this for the next week a practice that you do half of your meditation. Do something like that very simple guided meditation. Do three minutes just with sound. You can even get a bell next to you and keep ringing it. (laughs) You know, or just listen to the sounds in the environment, or, or go outside and be near a road maybe, and just listen to the arising and passing of sound. It's a very interesting and even fun practice. You know, do that with, you can do that with music, right? You know, and just listen to the, uh, the movement, especially if you do maybe something that doesn't bring in words, but just maybe one instrument playing, not too complex, you know, like a flute or something. You can just listen to the movement. Stay with the impermanent flow. It can be very exhilarating. Stay with the flow of sensation. Stay and stay with um, sensation that's both pleasant and unpleasant. You can learn a lot because part of what we see when we study impermanence, this is the big thing, is we see that which gets in the way of just being with the flow of phenomena, right? That is where a lot of the insight comes into being, that we see the flow uh, and we see where we get in the way of the flow. We see where I like this, I don't like this. We see where the mind gets distracted. You know, we see with body sensations, oh, I'm watching body sensations. Oh, there's an unpleasant one. Oh, don't want that one. And, And just setting up impermanence and watching what gets in the way of noticing impermanence is where insight occurs. Tremendous insight can occur when you do that over and over again. You can do it again, you can do that with thinking, more subtle. Just be for three minutes and watch the thinking occur, watch a a thought arise and pass away. When the mind gets quiet, sometimes we can just be so quiet that we can have a little mind bubble that goes whoop, like a little chirp. And when the mind is quiet enough, you can actually know that that little chirp was going to be relationship discussion number two. But it, it just was a chirp and it didn't get there. But you can actually know that, that you can start to see on this more subtle level how thoughts have this little burst of energy, they come into being, and then often they proliferate, right? One thought leads to another. And suddenly we're, you know, uh, you know that chirp of relationship issue number two 
manifests, it turns into convoluted reflections for 10 minutes about re relationship issue number two, which goes in all sorts of directions. And all of a sudden, it's really solid, right? But we can, to watch that impermanent flow uh, with thoughts can be very interesting. With all of this, what we're interested in is, can I just be with the arising and passing? And we notice, we start to notice more how the, it's a tendency of the mind not to be able to be with that flow of sensations at the different senses, but that we actually build a world, we start constructing. When we look into impermanence, we see more and more into the constructed nature of experience. You know, how we develop thoughts and concepts. You know, we can, and you can see that with vision. Look at a tree when your mind's pretty settled and see if you start having concepts come in related to the tree, or can I just be at the level of the visual data before concepts? A big part of what we actually can find out when we study with impermanence is how constructed our world is, which is sobering, right? That we live in a kind of constructed, conventional world. It's possible to move out of that to more direct experience. This is taken to be a pathway to come to greater freedom, to be able to do that. Impermanence of the kind, exactly like we did in a very simple way, is one of the doorways into that greater freedom. You don't have to do anything more than what we did, which is, which is very accessible. It's not hard. It helps if you have a more settled mind, but it's not hard to do. Just do it a lot. <laughs> but do it every day for 20 minutes. It will have an effect. And then you may be on the, you know, waiting line at the grocery store and you say, okay, let me just be with impermanence. Oh, impermanence is taking a little longer today. <laughs> I, ch I chose the wrong line. <laughs> Watch the constructions, right? Watch, see what this takes us, this, this um, meditation and the more subtle aspects of impermanence takes us into a deeper way of seeing things where we are actually a little to a large extent, <coughs> beneath the level of conceptualization. We, we start to see, oh my God, I live so much in a world of concepts. Mm. A world of concepts, conceptualization, conventional realities, which are completely useful, but they also obscure. They obscure these deeper realities, which are taken, to see them is taken to be a key to becoming more free. And I'll give a little more emphasis on that next time, on the, on the more subtle dimension. I just want to finish with, uh, with two reflections that help us really to see, that, see some of the deeper dimensions that impermanence practice opens up. I, I pointed to the way that working with impermanence can open up this sense of how a lot of our life is in a constructed world. Again, very much for pragmatic reasons, which are in large, to a large extent quite legitimate, but we, it's as, if, as, as it were, we live in this pragmatically constructed world, but then we don't realize it's constructed. <laughs> That's it, right? We don't realize it's constructed. We get caught in it. You know, it's like being in a movie and thinking the movie is real. We can step back, and impermanence helps because you know, we have the equivalent of noticing that the movie is 24 frames a second. Right? 
Isn't that amazing? You can have 24 frames a second and we, we, we are taken into the construction where it really seems real. Isn't that interesting? And it's actually, that's not a bad analogy for our ordinary experience. It's something like that. It's just happening so quickly that we and our minds tend to be not so subtle. But when our minds get more subtle, we can see these things more. And, um, you know, at first we can see it in a short meditation, and then we gradually bring it into daily life. So you can see, you can see this when you do the, what we did every day for 15 or 20 minutes. You'll notice it in those moments, and then we gradually bring it further out into, into daily life. So two, two uh, points to close. One of them is about how we can, in being with impermanence can take us into this deeper awareness. One of the practices which can, we can move into, at a certain point, we can start to shift perspective. We're focusing initially a lot on the impermanent flow of things, of sensations or sounds or thoughts. And then we can actually turn back and look at the knowing itself. It's almost like shifting perspective from the content to the knower of the content. This is a key move that's made in the meditative practices in the Thai forest tradition and quite a number of other traditions, where one starts to not so much identify with the flow, with the content, but be able to shift perspective to the awareness and just see the content as this passing show and focus especially on the awareness that's knowing. In the Thai forest tradition, this awareness that's knowing is taken to, in its depths, to be free. And one of the practices is to know the differentiation between the awareness and the contents. I thought I'd read another passage from Achan Cha uh, that brings this out. This is from his book. He has a whole book on impermanence called Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, which is a very nice book. should be in the bookstore if you wanted to look at this. And this is, he had, this is at a mature level of practice, there's uh, a combination of this, the stillness of awareness with the flow of phenomena. And he calls this still water flows, flowing water is still. Again, with his wonderful humor here. Stillness is tranquility and flowing is wisdom. We practice meditation to make the mind calm like still water. Then it can flow. Okay, this is going to be paradoxical, so bracket your logical mind for a few moments. You can, okay. In the beginning, we learn what still water is like and what flowing water is like. So we calm the mind, and then we actually notice the flow, right? This is our standard practice. A little bit of calming, and then we notice the flow. After practicing for a while, we will see how these two support each other both being still and flowing. This is something not easy to contemplate. We can understand that still water doesn't flow. We can understand that flowing water isn't still, but when we practice, we experience both of these together. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows or flowing water that's still. Whatever takes place in the mind of a Dharma practitioner will have that quality. Only flowing is not correct. Only still is not correct. When we have experience of practice, our minds will be in this condition of flowing water that's still. 
This is something we've never seen. When we see flowing water, it's just flowing along. When we see water, it doesn't move, but within our minds it will really be like this, like flowing water that is still. Whenever this occurs in the mind of one who practices, it is something different and strange, different from the ordinary mind that one has known all along. But before, when it was moving, it moved. When it was still, it didn't move, it was only still. The mind can be compared to water in this way, but through meditation it enters a condition that is like flowing water being still. Whatever we were doing, the mind is like water that flows, yet is still. Making our minds like this, there is both tranquility and wisdom. Thank you, Alchen Cha. <laughs> and then I just want to close with this point that I've made a few times, but that is really important, which is that the emphasis on impermanence is in many ways an emphasis on wisdom, on seeing clearly. And it always has to be balanced by compassion, by the holding of the heart with all of this, to know that we want to have compassion for the fact that we are beings that arise and pass away in time. You know, that, that which we hold dear, we cannot hang on to forever. Right? And that really calls for compassion. So again, that's very much the center of things. And let me see what I was, was going to end with. Yeah, I was thinking of a few things. One of them was, I remember I had, uh, this was several, quite a number of years ago, I had jaw surgery that was pretty intense, and I had general anesthesia. Friends of mine who were more in the medical field and interested in spiritual practice say that general anesthesia actually is pretty close to death, and that one can have something like a near-death experience with general anesthesia. And I had a very profound experience. I was in an altered state for 10 days. Uh, and it was, a lot of it was about impermanence. I was noticing, you know, perhaps because what had happened was that uh, my jaws had been broken and realigned. I had my mother's jaw and my upper jaw and my father's lower jaw, <laughs> perhaps vice versa. I don't, don't really know, but they had to be shifted and they, you know, they did something quite intense to my jaw, which I was under general anesthesia, but some part of me knew. And when I, um, when I woke up, I was just so aware of the fragility of things. And that lasted for about 10 days. I was just really aware everything is fragile. I would look at a cup and I would say, that is really fragile. It should be cared for. Right? Because it was, it was like, and sometimes it was scary. You know, it would sometimes alternate between fear and love in, that ex in those 10 days, particularly near the beginning. But there was a sense of everything is fragile, everything deserves love, even a cup, even these small material things. And that was quite strong. And I think that can be there when that heart is very strongly present with, with uh, impermanence. And then I thought I would end with, with, with a, just a short poem that I like. Uh, this is from, uh, this is from uh, Chinese poet Tu Wu, and a lot of the, uh, Tu uh, Fu, I'm sorry, a lot of the ancient Chinese poems, there's a very poignant sense of impermanence. I don't know if you've read Chinese poetry much, you know, you know over 
you know, several thousand years, reflecting on impermanence is often a theme. You know, there's a kind of poignancy and longing. And I thought I'd just read this because it relates to some of the themes, and I'll end with this. Every day on the way home from my office, I pawn another of my spring clothes. Every day I come home from the riverbank drunk. Everywhere I go, I owe money for wine. <laughs> History records few men, who, because they few humans, who live to be 70. I watch the yellow butterflies drink deep of the flowers and the dragonflies dipping, dipping the surface of the water again and again. I cry out to the spring wind and the light and the passing hours. We enjoy life such a little while. Why should human beings cross each other? So that's Tu Fu from, I think, um, close to 2,000 years ago. I think over, well over 1,000 years ago. We have a little time if there are any reflections or questions or um, really thoughts of any kind. Well, please, yeah, we can use the, we'll use the mic. I'd like to ask a favor from you, Donald. The yeah. 10 daily reflections, I don't know where to find those. Could you share them with the group? Um, yeah, um, I'll give the reference and you could look this up. There are, you know, there is a website, Access to Insight, which has the, uh, most of the text. And so I'll give the name of the text and this, and I can also send it to the listserv, but it, it's the uh, Dasa Dhamma Sutta, D-A-S-A-D-H-A-M-M-A. And if you, go to, if you go to Access to Insight, the website, and just put that in the search, you'll find it right away. Okay, or probably you can just do that in a Google search and you'll get different translations. So, Dasa Dhamma Sutta. Thank you. That, well, that was an easy question to answer. <laughs> I just wanted to add that the Thai Forest Monasteries chant, yeah. they call it the five reflections, but the other five are woven in. Yeah. And so if you go to Amravati or Bayagiri, even Damasid might have them chanting yeah. in Pali and English. Um, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. Yeah. There's like These reflections. Yeah, those are different from the 10 subjects for daily reflection. There's another... There's another chant. That I think I, last time I read it in the version by Thich Nhat Hanh, right? But yeah, the, the, those, are, those are both there. Other reflections, questions, comments? And again, we want to really, we want to hold this in a balanced way. This is not meant to be morbid or to unduly focus on the quote-unquote negative. It's really uh, again, the aim is to be a support for wisdom, to be a support for a sense of urgency and prioritizing. Okay, other 
impermanence and reflecting on death does sometimes make us more quiet, doesn't it? <laughs> the group has a little few, fewer questions than, than uh, sometimes, but they probably will just recur. Yeah, please. Yeah, this is just more of a reflection than a, than a question. Yeah. There was an article, um, it was an uh, essay in the New York Times on Sunday, about reflecting on a place and returning to a place and the changes yeah. of one's perception of place. Yeah. And it was very beautifully written, it was very poignant, and it sort of drew me to thinking of, um, as you reflect on impermanence, you really value the, value the beauty of things that change. It's sort of this idea of the beauty of, of, of ephemeral things and makes the moment when you're that, in that's it right. very, very um, clear and bright. Clear and bright, yeah. That, that Again, part of what this can do is uh, the um, practices with impermanence, they can really, you know, again, my experience has been that they're actually lightening and freeing, and they help to give some support for the mind being less busy, less distracted, less focused on things which are not so important for us, which, again, is a huge challenge in this society, isn't it? Again, even if people are retired, right, it's pretty, Interesting. So, uh, with all the electronic media, you know, I was on retreat and I got whatever, 50 emails a day. How can, again, so email practice with impermanence and wisdom is one of our deep uh, needs. <laughs> Please. Um, my, my kind literature teacher in school used to say, Kawe Kanem. Yeah. Seize the day. Seize the day. Is that uh, Carpe Diem? Oh, Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a long time since the Latin. Yeah. So Carpe Diem, it means mean seize the day, I believe, right? Yeah. It does. Yeah. And so um, similar sentiment. Again, all of this can be a little bit <coughs> misused or... <coughs> held in a little bit of a tight way. It's the, this is meant to be freeing. It's meant not to have tightness or reaction. On the way, it can, there can be some of that. Right? It's not an easy area, and so it can be a little bit uneven at times, for sure. Yeah. Great, so why don't we finish? This actually um, helps me to get where I'm going somewhat on time. So. How about if we, uh, we'll end with a few things. Any, was there anything else that was wanting to come out from a comment or a reflection or a question? Okay, let's do our chant, okay? Or maybe, maybe before the chant, let me invite us to just reflect for yourself if you'd like to do this practice. It could be, again, I've, I've offered uh, two main practices. One would be something like 10 minutes a day. Just reflect on impermanence and death in a very ordinary way. You can reflect on the, you know, the arising and passing of what, you know, the uh, people, politicians, sports teams, whatever. A lot of people are reflecting on the arising and passing away of the San Francisco 49ers as the Super Bowl <laughs> comes into it. Being, right? So it, the success of the team arises and passes away, right? And, and so forth. And uh, so you can just in a very ordinary way reflect on impermanence and death, you know, on one's own and 
so forth. And then the second practice, uh, that's the gr uh, practice with what I'm calling gross levels of impermanence. And then the more subtle levels of impermanence would be to do practices like we, what we did the last part of the uh, sitting, uh, just to give three minutes just to be with a rising and passing and changing of one sense at a time, sound, sensations, then thinking. Could be then all of your experiences, could be that as well. Just do it three minutes for each of them. So you, more than that, you can do more than that if you, if you have the concentration, but three minutes is usually workable whatever your concentration level. Okay? So those would be the two practices. So let me invite any intention you have to uh, practice in this way. Or what, what's your intention coming out of the morning? For some it might be to practice like that. For others maybe there was something else that came to you that in a sense has nothing to do with impermanence, but that's important. And that, that could be there too. And how many of you would like to do impermanence practice in preparation for next week? <clears throat> okay, good. And if you didn't raise your hand, you, you can still do it later. <laughs> okay, and uh, next week I'll focus a little more on the subtle dimension of impermanence and probably a little bit more on compassion and, uh, and the, the deeper places one goes. And maybe just see where I am, maybe bring in something else and then we'll, we'll close with the chant and dedication of merit. So we'll do, again, uh, I think, uh, call and response, I think. Anicca vata sankara Anicca vata sankara Upadava yadamino Upakitava niruchanti De sang upasamo suko. All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth. To be in harmony with this truth. Brings great happiness. And we end by offering the benefits of our morning, of our session, of our practice to ourselves, to everyone in this hall. And then beyond this hall, we offer the benefits, the fruits of our practice to all beings. Always remembering that we are part of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.